Let's turn our attention to the scriptures and uh, to the truths. I'm just going to put that right there. To the truths that Christians have always professed since the days of the New Testament. Distilled for us in the Apostles' Creed, not written by the Apostles themselves, but by the generation immediately after them, perhaps for some of the Apostles still in their lifetime or just after their death. We are slowly but surely drawing nearer to the end of our study through the Apostles' Creed. We began by thinking about God the Father and the scriptural truth about Him as the sovereign Creator and Lord. That's what the... um, That's what the creed confesses about him. And then we spent several weeks on God the Son as the creed walks us through the major events of his life and ministry for us and our salvation, his incarnation, his his life and obedience, his suffering and death under Pontius Pilate, um, his, his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. Then last week we blazed through Uh, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, His person and work. We had one week in which to do that. Well, tonight we're coming to the next two phrases in the Creed, if you're paying attention to what those might be. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Perhaps the two most misunderstood lines and phrases in the Creed outside of Jesus descended to hell or to the dead more properly. But those two phrases, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, um, I, think, I think they've been misunderstood because of the influence of Roman Catholicism um, and, uh, and, and then I, based on that and our preconceived interpretation of what those phrases must mean. I mean, for one, the word Catholic's in it, and I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, you can see why that might happen. So prematurely, in my view, many people just write off these or they feel extremely uncomfortable confessing this neighborhood of the creed, sort of write it off for that reason alone. But then, then at that point, because it talks about the Holy Catholic Church, having interpreted that as referring to the Roman Catholic Church, some might interpret then the communion of saints in a very Roman Catholic way. And you say, what does that mean? And I don't feel... You know, they, they might understand it and having to do in some way with praying to the saints or something like that. And they might, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that, so they reject that. But I think, I hope to show that those interpretations sort of misconstrue what we're confessing when we, when we confess, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Um, not just what we mean and confess uh, by doing it, but what the church has always, from the beginning, confessed and meant when they say these things. Um, so after this week, by the way, we'll just have two more weeks in this series um, uh, that will, on the forgiveness of sins is next week, and then um, uh, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting for the last week. That'll take us up to the week before um, Thanksgiving break, and then we'll do something a little different that night. If you've been with us before, I'll go ahead and spill the beans. We're trying our best to have a Thanksgiving dinner that night. Uh, under the tent, it'll be our like kind of like our last hurrah under the tent. We'll have a bunch of tables out there provided it doesn't rain, and we will feast under that big fat tent and say goodbye to it, right? So pray that it doesn't rain and be thinking about what you're going to bring, what dish you're going to bring, because if you don't, we won't eat. All right, 
Tonight, as we think, begin thinking about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, let's turn to Revelation chapter 7 to begin to get our bearings. Revelation chapter 7. We will begin here. I will make reference to it again along the way, but um, per usual, we will make reference to many different Scripture passages along the way as we think about these things. We'll start here, as it were, at the end of the story. In Revelation chapter 7, and look specifically at verses 9 through 12. So if you have found that place in your Bible, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 9, reading through verse 12. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the thrones and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this and every other scripture we read, we confess as we do every time is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It is why every time we gather, this is central. Not because of anything that I have to say, but because we hold in our hands this book. And so I pray, Father, that you would by the working of your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the truth tonight. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth and care about it. Wills to obey whatever you would have us to do in response. Give us ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here, there's a couple of things that I want us to consider tonight as we think through these two lines of, of, of the creed. Uh, clearly, um, the overarching idea in these two lines is the church. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and it's not surprising that this is the, this is the neighborhood of the creed we're in, and this is the, the, the theme and the focus of this, because um, where, it, where it comes in the creed. I mean, it, we, we've talked about all three persons of our triune God, uh, uh, and, and, and talked about the saving, our, our God's saving work to save a people for himself, save a people from their sins. And so it's not surprising having thought through all of that, what God, who God is and what God has done for us and for our salvation to save a people for himself that we now turn our attention to that people that he is saving for himself. And our attention is on the church. And so I want us to consider from the creed and from the scriptures that stand behind it just two, two broad points tonight about these. One is the nature of the church. I want to think about the nature of the church, and I know that's a broad statement, and there is much, much more that we could say about the nature of the church than I will say tonight, and in fact, um, 
you know, but we, we have done that. Um, it was last fall that I did a whole series in CBS on the church, and it's still on our podcast if you want to listen to any of that. Uh, just because we can't say everything doesn't mean that there's not anything we can say about the nature of the church. Um, there's certainly more we can say, but it's certainly not less than what the creed says here, the nature of the church. And there are two aspects of the nature of the church that I want to highlight from the creed. So um, under that heading, the nature of the church, there's two main aspects that the creed br- brings out about the nature of the church. One is the sanctity, the sanctity of the church. Um, yeah, S-A-N-C-T-I-T-Y, sanctity of the church. It's holiness is another way of saying that. The sanctity of the church, and two, another fancy word, the Catholicity. <laughs> the Catholicity. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I'm just using the creed's word. The Catholicity of the church. We're all Catholics in this way that I'm going to describe, and I'll explain what I mean. So that's the first thing I want us to think through tonight. The nature of the church, particularly the sanctity and the Catholicity of the church. Okay? The second thing we're going to consider, in addition to the nature of the church, is the nature of our communion. The nature of our communion. What is the nature of our communion? When we confess, I believe in the communion of the saints, what's the nature of that communion? What is it and what is it not? All in all, I think these are really encouraging lines to confess, and I hope we'll come to see that as we see it in the Scripture. So that said, let's think for a little bit about the nature of the church. And like I said, we've already done a whole series on this last fall where we said much more about this. Again, you can find those on our podcast. But again, the Apostles' Creed here seems to highlight two, just two main characteristics uh, fundamental to the church, the sanctity and the Catholicity of the church. So let's think at first about the sanctity of the, of the church. Um, and let's see, first of all, where we see that in, in the Creed. Then we'll see it in the Scriptures. We see it in the Creed in two, two places here. I mean, most, the most obvious place when it says, is implied in the word holy, when it says, I believe in the holy Catholic Church. Holy there. So sanctity is there. And the other place is in the word saints. I believe in the communion of saints. Uh, and when the Creed talks about saints, it is using that word in the New Testament sense of that word. Uh, and not as the later, much later, Roman Catholic understanding of, of saints. By that, they mean a, a select group of super holy ones, super accomplished ones in the faith, right? Uh, as if sainthood was something that we sort of strive for all our life long, and maybe we'll do some remarkable deeds of mercy in our life such that when we die, the Pope will take notice of us and declare sainthood on us, and then I can skip purgatory and go right to heaven. That's not what we mean by saints. Um, that is a sort of a popular use of the word saint. You know, I'm no saint. Um, there's a scene in, in the movie version of the Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but uh, the old priest in that movie, as he's laying dying, uh, he's about to breathe his last, and he confesses that he, he's, he had been telling a lie about this big thing his whole life, and he was confessing that lie. And the person he was saying that to looked at him all shocked, and he looked at him in his, in his last breath. He said, I'm a priest, not a saint, you know? Um, and it's that idea, like, well, if you're not a believer, maybe you're not a saint, even if you are a priest. But the New Testament uses that word not talking about super special 
uh, super category of, of Christians, but the New Testament talks about every single Christian, every single person who is born again and has put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, saints according to the New Testament. But, and you know that's the case because that word is even used in the New Testament, even of professing believers who at that time that it's being said of them are, li- are living decidedly not holy lives. I mean, uh, we'll see examples of that in just a minute, but that, that, that English word saints translates the Greek word hagioi, which means holy ones, right? And it's, and it's used literally, it's used of every, every, every believer as a holy one in the sight of God. Uh, the, when the Bible ta- and the Bible talks about holy ones in two ways. Before I lay out the, what those two ways are, though, don't miss that, that biblical idea then there that's embedded in that. If it's the holy Catholic Church, the holy church, and the church is made up of saints, don't miss that idea that's embedded in there that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a regenerate church. A regenerate church, in other words, made up of believers. The church is to be made up of believers. Now, that doesn't mean that on this earth, as you look out, even this church, Uh, In any church, it doesn't mean that on this church we see that achieved perfectly. That, you know, Jesus himself said in Matthew 13, he told the parable of the weeds. And he even said there that weeds, the weeds will always grow up together with the wheat. Right? And and the meaning by that, there will always be those in the church who profess to be believers in some way, but who are inwardly unbelieving. And, and, and are not born again. That The church on this earth in that way will always be a mixed church of believers and unbelievers. Only God can see our hearts, and He will sort that out at the judgment. But just because that will inevitably be the case in this fallen world, to some extent in the church, doesn't mean that the church is designed to, um, it is not designed to be a regenerate church of believers. Uh, and that is why we strive to the best of our ability to achieve admitting members to this church on the basis of a profession of faith, right? Um, That's why when babies are born into this church of believing parents, they are not automatically members of this church. But when they grow to a believing age and they profess faith, then we can welcome them into church. Why? Because we believe the Scriptures to teach. Church is a regenerate church. Believers are to be uh, church members. Right? And then the, pra- the biblical practice of church discipline is there to, if necessary, um, remove members who, who show themselves not to be believers and act in an unbelieving way. Anyway, that is a truth that's deeply rooted in Scripture and other places, and, and so we can confess wholeheartedly that the church is a holy church of saints. Not because we're perfect at it, but that's what's clearly taught in Scripture, and we're striving And we can say that in two ways. The church is holy, full of holy saints. We can say that in two ways biblically. Uh, The two ways in theological terms are called positional sanctification, positional sanctification, and the other is progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification, progressive sanctification. The word sanctification is the same root as the word saints. Sanctification, it just has as its root this idea of holiness. And it's also where we get the word sanctity, um, which I said is one of the two attributes of the nature of the church mentioned in the creed. Scripture says that 
every true believer in Christ is sanctified, is a saint in two ways, in a positional way and in a progressive way. Okay? So what do we mean when we say positional? What is positional holiness? What is positional sanctification? That has to do with our present status, status before God, our present status of being separated unto God, set apart to and for the Lord. We've been, as the Scriptures say, transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ, out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's our status. That's our position. We have died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. That's our position. And the New Testament over and over again describes this as every true believer's position before God. Even, even, and it's an immovable, inflexible truth about every believer. Even in the moments when we have stumbled and are not walking in perfect obedience, our position before the Lord of, of being positionally holy in His sight has not changed. Think, for example about how 1 Corinthians begins. Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, his, his first, well, you know, did you know, I'm not, this is a rabbit trail, did you know that, it, judging from internal evidence, that it appears that Paul actually wrote four letters to Corinth, and what we know is 1 and 2 Corinthians are actually 2 and 4 Corinthians. I'll just leave that there. But what we know at, is 1 Corinthians, um, before, we, before we look at um, before we look at the opening words of the, of the book, just think about that letter as a whole. If you're, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, just take a step back and think about the kind of stuff we see in that letter. You, do you remember that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is basically chastising them for one thing after another? I mean, it just jumps around from topic to topic to topic. Um, and and it, like, for example, in chapter 5, he chastises them because there's a church member who's committing gross sexual immorality with like his stepmother. And it's like the rest of the church is not even doing anything about it. And they're like, just, you know, whatever. And they're like, he's like, seriously? And then in chapter 6, the very next chapter, he's like chastising them because there's lawsuits among them. Instead of just working things out in a godly way, they're suing each other in, 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 in the church. And in chapter 11, he's talking about the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper. And remember, he's saying there, there's, there's conflict even when they take the Lord's Supper, you know. The, the food's gone before the other half of the church even shows up, and it's just a, it's a rotten mess. That's what you get in 1 Corinthians. I mean, they're a rotten bunch. But look at how Paul begins the letter. Here's how he begins. 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So there you see about as clearly as you could ever see anywhere that saints refer to all those who in every place call on Jesus Christ. But he says that even they, they, the, 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 ones, the ones who are tolerating a man in gross sexual immorality or who are suing each other and, and arguing and, 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 and conflict around the Lord's Supper, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, a settled reality called to be saints, set apart as holy in Christ Jesus. Later in that same letter, in the same chapter as the whole quit suing each other, work things out in a godly way, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's an already settled reality about them. Their fixed position before God. Even in the midst of a letter like that. Or think about what we read in Hebrews 10, verses 10 and 14. Hebrews 10, 10, and 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that is interesting. Because in those two verses you have, have been sanctified and are being sanctified. You have, in one sense, we have been sanctified already. That's what we've been talking about. And in another sense, we are being sanctified now. One has to do with our position before God. That is settled. That's positional sanctification. The other has to do with the progressive growth that happens in us over time to make us, progressive sanctification makes us practically over time what we have already been declared to be positionally way back here. Does that make sense? We've been declared positionally to be this, and now the Spirit works in us daily to make us practically what we have already positionally been declared to be. Right? And we see that also um, in the New Testament. We have already been positionally uh, righteous because we are as holy in the sight of God as we ever will be. You are as holy in the sight of God, positionally, as you ever will be, because as you stand before God, it is not your righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that you are clothed in. And so you are as righteous as Jesus is righteous right now, positionally. But in this life, there's also a biblical reality called progressive sanctification, which we could describe as the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in us, along with our active participation to bring about increasing victory over sin and increasing Christ-like character. I'll say that again if you're trying to write that down. We could describe progressive sanctification as the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in us along with our active participation to bring about increasing victory over sin and increasing Christ-like character. Think about how we see this in the Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 talks about sanctification, this kind of sanctification as something that we are to work hard and bring about in our lives. Okay, think about, think about this. Here's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, colon, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So, I mean, and it goes on, it's even more. So in that passage, what is God's will for you? Your sanctification. What are you to do about it? Control yourself. Abstain from sexual morality. Control your body to do holy things with it. You do it. Your sanctification, okay? Your sanctification is will, okay, do it. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. But just one chapter later, one chapter later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Paul talks about sanctification as something that God brings about in you. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in our growth in holiness, in our practical, progressive growth in holiness and sanctification, God works in us and we work. But there's a great passage. I, I like recommending books to you. I just will go to sleep at night trusting that you read. Um, this little book, it's a great book. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, who is dead now, but he wrote this great book before he died. And uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Here is what he said. When he's th he was thinking about this idea of sanctification being something that we work at and also something that God is doing in us. And here's how, I, and he was thinking about it in terms of Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Remember that passage? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here is, by the way, this book is, I just did the work for you. It's $13 on Amazon. So, um, he talks about what is the relationship between God working in us and our working. Because 1 Thessalonians 4 says, you abstain from sexual immorality. You do it. And you present your bodies for holiness. You do it. 523 says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. He does it. Which is it? How do those two things work together? How does it work together? God working in me and me working. What's the relationship between those two things? Here is what he says. And listen carefully. God's working in us is not suspended because we work nor is our working suspended because he works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or the coordination of both produce the required result. No. God works in us, and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we work. You hear that? All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. Not the willing to the exclusion of the doing and not the doing to the exclusion of the willing, but both the willing and the doing. And this working of God is directed to the end of enabling us to do His will and to do that which is pleasing to Him. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we have also the incentive to our willing and working. What the Apostle Paul is urging is the necessity of working out our own salvation. And the encouragement he supplies is the assurance that it is God himself who works in us. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that the all-energizing grace and power is of God. So in other words, he's saying, the harder you work, your sanctification is God's will, colon, your, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's just take that one. So the harder you work at abstaining from sexual immorality, the more sure you can be that God is already working in you. Your hard work is evidence it's the effect of his work in you right that's encouraging that means that's what we mean when we say when the words of the creed i believe in the holy catholic church and the communion of saints 
It is the belief that positionally we are already set apart by faith in Christ and holy before God because of our faith in Christ who is our substitute before God. And the belief that progressively in this life we are being made more and more into the likeness of Christ in character and in action, that is the sanctity of the church. But according to the creed, it's not just the sanctity of the church that it confesses, it is the Catholicity of the church that it confesses. I believe in the holy Catholic church. And that's the one that might at first make most of us second guess, should I say that? I'm not Catholic, should I skip that line? Is this a Catholic thing? What do we mean by the Catholicity of the church? In one, of the, in one of the books of the creeds and confessions in my office, I, when you turn to the Apostles' Creed, there's a footnote by the word, there's a little asterisk by the little c, Catholic. And the footnote says this, that is the true Christian church of all times and all places. That's what it means by Catholic, little c. So when we say we believe in the holy little c Catholic church, it simply means we believe, as the Bible teaches, that Christ has been building his church since the very beginning and will continue to do so until he comes again, and he is building it among every nation, tribe, and people and language, as we just read in Revelation chapter 7, describing the multitude of the redeemed, the church in all its fullness there around the throne, every tribe and nation and people and language and yeah, of all time, for all eternity. Catholic just means universal in that way. Universal. Little c Catholic. So when we, when we confess, think, think through the implications of confessing that. Okay? Think through the implications of confessing, I believe in the holy Catholic church, the Catholicity of the church. When you confess our belief in, in, in the Holy Catholic Church, it unhitches the church from every form of nationalism. It, it's unhitched. It, un, it, it, it unhitches the church from every other tribalistic impulse sin, sinful man might devise. The, the church everywhere for all time is hitched to only one allegiance, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And our belief in the Catholicity of the church, combined with the biblical truth that Jesus is still building that church, issues a, a call to us to, to make disciples not only of our neighbors in our neighborhood, but of all nations, because that's the, that's the Catholic church he's building to the ends of the earth. And the Catholicity of the church ought to make us emphasize as much as we can the unity of the church over its differences, right? It should. As much as we can faithfully do so according to the Scriptures. And these ecumenical creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, can, can help us do that, recognizing that we can find some measure of unity with churches, all churches everywhere who hold to these things. And, and these are the most basic things. Other divisions and denominations, like what you people are, what, what about denominations? Should we have denominations? Sure, we should have denominations. 
right? Sure, why? Because de denominations like that, are, they're simply a, 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 a reality in a fallen world in which we have finite minds, and our finite minds and fallen sinful minds come to different conclusions when we try to understand the Scriptures. They don't come to different understandings of the gospel itself, if you want to be called a Christian, but they might come to different conclusions about secondary matters, about the government of the church or the ordinances of the church or any manner of things. And, so, and, and, and furthermore, if you understand the Bible in this particular way about church government or about baptism in the Lord's Supper or about any other thing like that, a secondary matter, then you are now bound by your own conscience to believe that until you're proven otherwise in Scripture. And so you might want to go worship with people who believe the same thing so that you're not gnawing up your conscience every time you go to church, right? So, hence different denominations form. But in heaven, it will not be so. Because then and only then, we will know even as we are known. And until then, we hold our differences graciously. And we maximize our unity wherever and whenever we can. And we shouldn't be afraid to read or listen to voices that think differently than we do. Because we might just occasionally learn something. But then, we've talked about the nature of the church, primarily uh, the sanctity of the church. We are holy in Christ and progressively being made holy in practice. And the Catholicity of the church, that this is true of believers everywhere, but then the creed also confesses our belief in the communion of saints. So throughout, having thought through the nature of the church in, in terms of its sanctity and catholicity, what then is the nature of our communion? Let's just say a word about that. What is the communion of saints? We do not confess this article of the creed in the way that Roman Catholics do, which is tied to their understanding of praying to departed saints. Praying for them is tied with their idea of purgatory, etc. It's not what we confess when we say we believe in the communion of saints. What do we mean then? We can think about that in at least two ways. One, in terms of the relationship of the individual Christian to the, to the church. And then, term, and then second, in terms of the blessed hope we look forward to at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Let me just say a quick word about each of those. When we confess our belief in the communion of saints, it has first to do with the relationship of the individual Christian to the whole body of the church. If the communion, communion of the saints teaches us anything, it is that when a person professes faith in Christ, it is the biblical expectation that they then join, belong to, and be folded into a community of a local church this communion. Sure, we believe, we've already said we believe in the holy Catholic church, universal church, um, worldwide, and that we are all brothers and sisters uh, of one another whenever and wherever believers were, are, or ever will be found in the world, we are brothers and sisters of them. That's the church's Catholicity. To believe then in the communion of saints then, as, an, as a separate phrase from that, it certainly agrees with that, but it also confesses something more. So think of it this way. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 4, and 5. Paul writes, For as in one body 
we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, when he said that, he was saying something true for all the church for all time. But he was writing that to the church in Rome. Paul sat down, and he wasn't writing all churches for all time. He said, I'm going to write a letter to this church in Rome. And what am I going to say to them? You are one body in Christ. Though you are many people, you're one body, and you're members of one another. That's how he described them. So as believers, we are to be members of this local body where we are, just like if we lived in Rome, we'd have been part of the church in Rome. And we do that so that we here can be members of one another and so that we can, we can function and flourish so the, 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 the church can, the local church can function, function, function and flourish in every place with the gifts and the graces that God provides to it in and through each of its members, a communion of saints in Christ Jesus. So it has to do with the individual Christian in relation to the local church. But we wouldn't be telling the whole story if we didn't also point out that there is something much broader also going on here. The communion of saints doesn't just have reference to do with our communion among us here in this place. Um, and not just in the, in, in, in the church universal, but in the local church. It also has reference to our communion in, in some sense with all the saints who have gone before us. It reminds us, when we say the communion of saints, and we're somehow, we somehow experience communion with all the saints who have gone before us, it reminds us that the Christian church today is not an anomaly on the map of world history. It's not an anomaly. We stand in a long, long line of believers who have gone before us, thousands, thousands of years. It's an ancient faith. It's an ancient church. And the communion that we have with all the saints who have gone before us is not just a remembrance of their life, not just a remembrance of the past, but is also bound up with a precious hope for the future. I'm going to show you this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin to wrap this up. Hebrews 11. You may be somewhat familiar with this passage already. It is a, from beginning to end, basically a litany of faithful saints throughout biblical history who lived by faith and died in faith. And he gives examples of Enoch and Abel and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, David, Samuel, all the prophets. I mean, it is a long, long, noble list of people. People who, it says, were looking forward to Christ, clinging by faith to the promises, pressing on till the day they died. And then, have you ever noticed how that, ver how that chapter ends? Look at, look at verse 39. I mean, well, just, just to get the feel of 39, it's like a punch in the gut. But like, look at, just Start in verse 36, and then we'll work our way to 39. 
All these faithful people, others suffered mocking and flogging, in chains, imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Marinate on that one. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Then verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Wah, 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 wah. Are you kidding me? What do you mean? I mean, taken alone out of the, <laughs> taken out of context, I mean, slap that one on Instagram, it'll be kind of awful. I mean, that's pretty deflating. Thanks for your faith. Too bad. But why does it say they did not receive what was promised? Verse 40. Since, oh, there's a reason, there's hope. God had provided something better for us, not them, us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they died in faith, and they are in the presence of God now for sure. I mean, Abraham's with God right now. Come on. But they, even though he is with God right now, even Abraham will not reach the more perfect. The more perfect. In other words, soul reunited with resurrection body in a new heavens and new earth. Jesus has come back. He reigns. He's king. They will not experience that apart from us. That's what that verse is saying. We will go in together. That's what it's saying. Like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Samuel, prophets, everybody, all of them that you haven't even heard of before, they are with the Lord now. Their body is in the ground. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. Their body's in the ground. Their soul is with the Lord. When Jesus returns, body and soul reunited in a resurrection body like Jesus and we will go into a new heavens and new earth. They will not go in before us. We will go in together. They're hanging on, waiting on us. That's the reason why they didn't yet receive what was promised. We will walk in at the same time as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hence, chapter 12 begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. They are our great cloud of witnesses. In what way are they witnesses? They're not idly bearing witness to our life. They're not as idly standing by watching us live. No, they are actually bearing witness by their faithful lives, encouraging us to press on as they did, to enjoy the blessing of God together when Christ comes again. Remember, we said this a couple of weeks ago, that when the Scriptures say when Jesus comes again, He will be coming with His saints for His saints. With those who had already gone before, for us who are here when He, when he returns. That is the nature of our communion. And that is at least a little bit of what we mean when we say, I believe in the holy Catholic 
church and the communion of saints. As the praise band comes to close us out, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these precious truths. Thank you that you are not just saving saving me, saving us as individuals. You are saving a people. And and you you give us you give us great hope in Christ that even when we stumble, we are still positionally holy in your sight because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we can trust that even as we feel, still feel so far from perfect, we can trust that you are um, always working in us to make us more like Christ in this life. And, and the day will come one day when we see you face to face and we will become like you and the we will not enjoy not only the, the, pre, the, the, the penalty of sin as we enjoy now being removed and the power of sin progressively being taken away, but the very presence of sin being removed. We will enjoy that place in that day together with all those who have gone before us. What a day that will be and what a hope you've given us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.